the book of Psalms, chapter number 32. I want to talk to you tonight very simply about how to get right with God. Now, I realize that in a group this size, there are those that are lost. You've never been saved. You never trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior. And I pray the Holy Spirit will bring you to an awareness of your sin and your need of a Savior and that he will convince you that Savior is the dear, beloved Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified on the cross for your sin, bodily raised from the dead. I pray that if you don't know the Lord Jesus tonight, you'll get right with God and be saved. Having said that, my primary emphasis, the burden of my heart that I believe has been placed in my soul and laid on my spirit by the very Holy Ghost of God is to talk to the person that is already saved, the genuine born-again blood-bought child of God that is not right in your fellowship with God. I don't mind confessing to you. The message that the Lord has laid on my heart tonight is not what we preachers would call a sugar stick message. The reality is it's not even what I would personally consider a Bible conference message, but I preached this message in my own pulpit several months ago. And as I labored before the Lord with what to bring tonight, I'm telling you the Spirit of the Most High God told me to preach this message tonight because there are children of God in this sanctuary tonight that need to simply come in close and get clean in the presence of your God. I've been at this thing long enough to know that some of the folks that are farthest away from the Father, that are the most desperately distant from God, are the people that would never miss a Thursday night Bible conference sermon. I'm talking about the fact that hardly a week goes by that we don't hear about the staff member that's been caught with his hand in the cookie jar down at the church or the deacon that's left town with his secretary or the music minister that's come out of the closet. I don't know why it's usually the music minister that comes out of the closet, but it seems to be the music minister that tends to come out of the closet. Or we hear about two teenagers within the youth group. Oh, they would never miss a weekend denial celebration, but you found out that they've become sexually active. She's turned up pregnant because they, they know Christ as Lord and Savior. They're genuinely saved, but they're not right with God. And tonight I've come to tell you how to get right with God. Psalm 32, and I want to read just one simple little verse, verse number 5. Psalm 32 and verse 5, David, the sweet singer of Israel, prays in repentance and says, I acknowledged my sin unto thee. And mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Let's bow in prayer together, please. Father in heaven, in the strong and matchless name of Jesus... I pray that you would shove your very words through my mouth and that as you anoint me to preach, that you would anoint your people to hear. And I pray that at the conclusion of this message and the end of this night, the lost will be saved, your people will be drawn back into a revived relationship with you. This church and the churches represented here would be strengthened and your son Jesus would be glorified for the price of redemption that he paid for us on the cross of Calvary. May it be for the glory of the risen Christ and all the Lord's people said, Amen.
Bible students hardly need a reminder about the historical setting of this 32nd Psalm. It and a parallel Psalm, numbered 51, were written in the aftermath of the confession of David with his sin with Bathsheba. In the unlikely event, there's one here tonight that is not familiar with the story. Let me give you the Cliff's Notes version. David, the king of Israel. I'm talking about David that killed Goliath with the sling and the stone. I'm talking about David, the king of Israel. David was in his house at the time the Bible says that kings were supposed to go out to war. And at evening time when people in the right mind who had been working a hard day's work would be going to bed. David was just getting out of the bed. And he walked around on the roof of his house, and you remember the story. He saw a woman bathing, and the Bible pulls no punches. She was a good-looking woman, and David inquired as to who this woman was. And an unnamed servant, which, by the way, is often, especially in the Old Testament, typical or picturesque of the work of the Holy Spirit, an unnamed servant said to the lustful king, David, that woman you're asking about, that is the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That servant was saying, in essence, David... I've got red blood flowing through my veins just like you do. I know a good-looking woman when I see a good-looking woman. I hear that lilt in your voice. I see that twinkle in your eye. I know what's on your mind. And David, I'm begging you by the mercies of God, don't forget you're a married man and that's a married woman. David, don't do this terrible, terrible thing. But David would not listen to counsel. David would not listen to reason and he brought the woman into his house, brought her into his bed, committed adultery with her and sent her home thinking all's well that ends well. But beloved, all did not end well. Weeks went by and her body began to tell her that she was carrying a child. The only man with whom she had been was the king himself. Her husband was off at the front lines of the battle. She sent word to the king, I'm carrying your child. And David enacted a conspiracy that in the interest of time, I'll just go to the end of the story and say he ended up having her husband murdered on the field of battle and though the weapon of the adversary was the tool that was used, David murdered that man to cover up his adultery as surely as if he had strangled the life out of him with his own hands. He took Bathsheba to be his wife. And although David thought that everything was fine, the Bible says that the thing that he had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Scholars debate, but most agree that the better part of a year had transpired. The precious baby, the innocent baby that had been born to that adulterous Tris was birthed into the world when all of a sudden David heard a knock at the door. He went to the door. Who is it? It's the preacher. (laughs) Nathan the prophet. Can you hear King David? Come on in, preacher. What's on your mind? Well, David, I want to tell you a little story. And at the conclusion of that story, the prophetic finger was raised into the face of the king. David, thou art the man. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But I have come tonight with less of a sermon and more of a burden because I am convinced of the Holy Ghost 
that I have been sent here by the high sheriff of heaven to arrest one of his wayward children, not that you would know incarceration, but that you might know freedom of what it means to really get right with God. In the aftermath of David's confession of his infamous sin, he writes the 51st Psalm and he writes this 32nd Psalm as well and it includes tonight's text, I acknowledged my sin unto thee and mine iniquity I have not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Now, My time is limited tonight and I want to get out of the way and listen to one of my favorite preachers preach. But I want us to observe three things from this one verse about what it means to get right with God. If you're taking notes, I trust that you'll write this first thing down. I want us, number one, to listen to what he explained. Now tonight at the invitation, this church is like the church where I'm blessed to be a member. Men and women and teenagers and boys and girls will come to this altar for various reasons and, and prayer warriors will just naturally come and you'll kneel beside them. You'll place a hand upon the shoulder and maybe on the back as just an unspoken way of saying, I am praying for you and I'm praying with you. I am here for you. But I think we would all agree that would it not be very polite that if we were up here kneeling by someone that was praying and trying to get right with God, it would not be proper for us to try to lean our ear in as close as we could and just try to eavesdrop in on what they were praying about. But yet when David kneels at an altar of confession, if you please, the Holy Spirit himself says, David, write that down. I want the people of the Real Bible Conference at Hillcrest Baptist Church of Lebanon, Tennessee, I want them to listen to what you are explaining about getting right with God. And there are two simple components to this prayer that we need to notice. As we we listen, I want you to notice, first of all, the sinner of whom he prays. I want to read our text tonight again, and I want to emphasize a few words and see if you can follow what I'm saying. Here's what David says. Look at it in your Bible. I acknowledged my sin unto thee. And mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. David realized that the first step to getting right with God, to being made clean by God, he had to acknowledge that there was a problem in his relationship with God and the problem was not on God's end and the problem wasn't on Bathsheba's end and the problem wasn't on Uriah's end and the problem wasn't that Nathan hadn't preached on adultery in time to save this terrible thing from happening. David had to come face to face with the fact the problem was the man staring him back in the ancient mirror. David says in essence, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I wonder, is there anyone in the building tonight like the preacher that can very often spot somebody else's sin a mile away, but we can't see our own down at the end of our nose? Kind of like the man who ate the onion sandwich and then went around town talking about everybody else having B.O. and didn't realize the problem was literally under his own nose. David does not say, God, That woman should not have been bathing within plain view. Now that's the truth, but that's not what David says. He doesn't blame Uriah and say Uriah left his wife at home with an unmet need. No, that's not what he said. 
He doesn't say this unnamed servant should have bound me and kept me from doing this thing. No, David puts the blame on the man in the mirror. David says, here's the problem. God, I'm talking about myself and what I have done. Not that long ago, I had a man in my church. It was a confidential meeting, but you don't know him. But he had devastated his marriage. His wife was brokenhearted. All of her family was very angry with him, and understandably so. They perhaps were not handling their anger as God would have had them to handle it. But as he said in my office, here's what that man said in the brokenness of his sin. I did it, preacher. I did it. My wife's not to blame. She was a good wife. She was a godly wife. And I have devastated my wife. I have hurt my children. And even the way that my in-laws are treating me, even though, even though they're not doing what I know they ought to do, even that is my fault because I put something in their lap and on their plate that they didn't ask for. It's all my fault, preacher, and I just don't know where to start to fix it. And I looked him in the eye and said, that's a pretty good place right there. The sinner of whom he prays. But I want you to notice also, and remember we're just listening to this prayer, and we hear not only the sinner of whom he prays, but the Savior to whom he prays. Did you, did you see it? I acknowledge my sin unto thee. In the middle of the verse he says, I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then he says, thanks be to God, thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. David realized that all of his sin was ultimately and preeminently against God. Did he sin against Bathsheba? Yes, he did. Did he sin against his own family? Absolutely. Did he sin against Uriah? He most certainly did. As the king, did he sin against the entire nation? Yes, he did. And because of his sin, the sword has yet to depart from his house till this very night. But even though David sinned against a whole bunch of other people, he recognizes that his ultimate sin is against God. Now, friend, if you don't come to that place, you will never get right with God. Because if you don't acknowledge that God is the one that, has, that you have offended, you will be an excuse-making, blame-shifting, buck-passing child of God that will never come clean with this reality. I did it, and I did it against God. This is the primary theological difference between a mistake and a sin. Now, when I share the gospel... When I seek to be a soul winner, I, I tend to use the old ABC method. You've used it in vacation Bible school. Admit, believe, and confess. And I'll supplement that ABC method with verses from the Romans Road. And when I talk to people about admitting that they are a sinner, Brother Rick, it is a very rare thing for someone to not admit that they are imperfect. 
I mean, when you say, would you be willing to admit that you are a sinner? Oh, yes, I make mistakes every day. Well, listen, friend, I do too, but making mistakes every day doesn't have one cotton-picking thing to do with being a sinner. A mistake is when you wear blue socks with black pants because you didn't have the light on in the bedroom. A mistake is when you back out into the trash can pulling out of your driveway. Sir, a mistake is when you call your wife by your old girlfriend's first name. That's a mistake mistake. It's probably even a fatal mistake. You may not live to confess that mistake, but none of those things are necessarily sins. But what David is confessing is that God, I just hadn't done a boo-boo. This isn't because of my imperfection. This is because of my iniquity. God, what I have done has transgressed your holy law. It has violated your blameless character. God, I have broken your righteous commandments. I have sinned against you. Now, if you don't understand that, you'll always find somebody else to blame because if we could just be honest for a moment, that person that you're bitter toward, they may have done something to deserve that, but God didn't. Young people, your parents, by any standard, may not be worthy of your honor, but the God who commanded you to honor them, he's worthy of you obeying that commandment. The the, the wife that God gave you, she may not in various ways have merited or earned your fidelity, but the one, sir, who commanded you to be faithful to her, he is faithful and true. And we could turn that around from the wife that wants to blame her husband and the parents that want to blame their kids, the kids that want to blame their parents, and everybody wants to blame somebody else. But David says, God, I want to acknowledge I'm the one that has sinned. You're the one that I have sinned against. Are you listening to what David explained? Good, because there's a second key to getting right with God. I want to invite you back to this fifth verse to where we not only listen to what David explained, but I want us to look at what David expressed. Someone has called Psalm 32 an x-ray of the guilty conscience. What I'd like to do is just turn on the MRI machine for just a moment and let's see what David would express to us. Two two very simple and basic things. Number one, I want you to notice the recognition of his sin. Now, what I mean by that is David is coming clean with what he did. Listen, church, he's calling it by its first name. Have you noticed that in our culture, including in the church culture, we want to rename all of our sin? It's no longer adultery. It's a marital indiscretion. It's no longer an abomination. It's an alternative lifestyle. It's no longer lying. It's an alternative fact. Where'd y'all go? I, didn't, I, I don't hear you anymore. Used to, when I was growing up down in South Georgia, I don't know about around Nashville, Tennessee, but when a man and a woman were living together without the protection and the blessing of holy matrimony, we called that living in... 
sin. Now it's called cohabitation. That still sounds a lot nicer than fornication, which is what God still calls it. I want you to notice that David almost empties a theological thesaurus as he describes exactly what he has done. Elsewhere in this chapter and in the parallel 51st Psalm, he talks about guilt. He talks about guile. He talks about deceit. He talks about blood guiltiness. He talks about wickedness. He talks about evil. And in tonight's text, this one little verse, he says, what I did was sin, it was iniquity, it was a transgression. Now I want us to just dissect these three words very briefly as we notice how David recognizes what he had done. First, he calls it sin. In our text, I acknowledge my sin unto thee. Thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. That word in the Hebrew of the Old Testament as well as its counterpart over in the New Testament speaks of missing the mark, of not meeting the standard. The picture here as well as the Greek word over in Romans 3.23 that we have all sinned and fallen short. We've come up short of the glory of God. That is, God has a standard and we haven't met it. God has a bullseye and we've missed it with our lives. David says, God, you had a standard. I didn't meet it. Now lean in close and listen to the skinny little preacher tonight. You may meet the standard that is set by the world... And you may even be able to meet a standard by comparing yourself to somebody in the choir or somebody on the deacon body or some Sunday school teacher. Isn't it amazing? We can always find somebody down at the church that we can compare ourselves to and find ourselves better than them. But David does not say, God, I failed to meet the expectations of the church covenant. God, I failed to meet the standard of the Sunday school teacher uh, expectations. He doesn't say, God, I failed to meet the standard of a moral community of believers. He says, God, I failed to meet the standard that you set forth in your word, God. I have sinned. And then he uses the word iniquity. At the end of this verse, he says, Thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Earlier in the verse, he says, Mine iniquity have I not hid. This word iniquity speaks of something that is perverse, twisted, crooked. One commentator says it speaks of a hardness of heart. It speaks, listen now, of a don't care attitude. In the 15 years that I've been pastoring the Emanuel Baptist Church in Blackshear, Brother Glenn, I have seen this change in that 15-year period, what I'm about to describe. Early in my ministry, counseling people who had devastated their lives because of sin, there seemed to be a little bit more of a brokenness about it. But in a decade and a half, most of what I encounter is that I don't give a royal rip kind of attitude. Maybe David has in mind the warning of that unnamed servant. Maybe David had in mind the fact that the lust he committed with Bathsheba was a hot-hearted sin, but the murder of her husband Uriah was a cold-blooded sin. He had calculated that thing for days. He didn't stumble across sin and fall into it. No, he planned exactly what he was going to do and did not care who else got hurt. It sounds like this in our day. I know what the Bible says, but 
I know how I've been raised. But I, I know what the scriptures teach. But this is going to make me happy. This is going to float my boat. This is going to ring my bell. This is going to scratch my itch. This is, I'm finally going to be what I want to be and have what I want to have. And at the bottom of that statement is this simple fact. I don't really care what any of you think about it. I'm going to be happy. David says that hardness of heart, that was a twisted, crooked, perverted act of iniquity. He says it was sin. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't meet the standard says it was iniquity, it, it was hard-hearted. And then he calls it a transgression. Right in the middle of the verse, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Now, it's highly unlikely that anybody in the building has used the word transgression this week unless you were reading from the Bible. But we have a similar word that we use. It's based on the same root word and means exactly the same. You ever go hunting and, and you come up on the property line and somebody has nailed a sign to the tree no trespassing that's this word transgression you get some indication of that over in the model prayer forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us David says God when I did what I did I rebelled against your law I saw the no trespassing sign and I walked right by it. Maybe, maybe he was thinking about the fact that when Bathsheba and Uriah stood at an altar of God, maybe not too dissimilar than this one, the preacher said, Bathsheba, do you? She said, I do. Uriah, do you? Yes, sir, I do. Okay, it's done. And at that moment of marriage... God himself drew a boundary line around their marriage bed and said there's not to be another man in this bed but Uriah. There's not to be another woman in this bed but Bathsheba. And David said, when I saw that woman, I did not care. God, I stepped across that boundary line. God, I'm ashamed to admit it, but I trespassed your boundary line. From the moment Uriah was conceived within the womb of his own mother until the time of his untimely death, God had drawn a boundary line around his life and said, Thou shalt not kill. And David, when it would meet his need and further his agenda, he says, God, I killed that man and I stepped across your boundary line. God, I have transgressed your law. Now, friend, I'm not suggesting that you've got to sound like a theologian, well-versed in what we would call harmatiology the doctrine of sin. I don't necessarily think that you've got to come to an altar and say every one of these words, but I will tell you this, what I've been describing tonight absolutely must be the condition of your heart and the cry of your soul if you're going to get right with God. There's the recognition of a sin. But now as we look at this, I want us to notice also the revelation of his sin. And, and by this... I'm not talking about the fact that his sin was discovered. I'm talking about the fact that he revealed it. 
Did you see the play on words in verse 5? I acknowledge. That means I came clean. I was open about it. I acknowledged my sin unto thee and mine iniquity have I not hid. Then he says, I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Now, over in the New Testament, most of you are familiar with the fact that the primary Greek word in the New Testament for confess is homologos. It means to say the same thing as to God says it's sin. And before I repent, before I confess, I say, no, it's not sin. But then when I do repent and confess, I say the same thing about my sin that God said about my sin. I say the same word that God says about it. That's the New Testament word. But would it interest you to know The primary Hebrew word for confess, the one that David uses here, literally means this. Listen, it means to come with an open hand. David says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to open hand my transgressions to the Lord. Let me illustrate the usage of this word by telling you about something that happened to me. I'm blessed with four children. My wife and I, the youngest, is now four years old. He was probably an older two when this happened. I I walked out of my bedroom into the kitchen area and I I, I walked in there and I saw him with his hand in a Tupperware dish where we keep the cookies. So you, you know what I mean if I say I caught him with his hand in the cookie jar. It was not cookie time. He knew it wasn't supposed to be cookie time so he did what your kids and grandkids did. He... Oreo crumbs all around his mouth embedded in his teeth. Matthew, what have you got? Mm-hmm. What's in your hand? Mm-hmm. Your other hand, son. Earlier in this psalm, David says, during that year when I would not come clean about what I'd done, my body was wasting away as with the feverish heat of summer. He says, I felt your hand heavy on me. Now, Brother Steve, usually when we say, man, that person has the hand of God on them, that's usually a compliment. Y'all tracking with me? Not how David was using it. God, when I would not come clean about my sin, I felt your hand on me. And God, I thought you were going to crush me. And may I interrupt my own message tonight to say from the last row of the balcony to the front row of this bottom floor, if the Spirit of God has put His finger on something, if the hand of heaven is wrapping itself around you, that is an act of grace. That is an act of mercy. That is your loving Father drawing you back to Himself. And David says in essence, I am tired of trying to hide my sin from a God who sees everything and knows everything. God, I'm going to confess my sin. I'm open-handing my sin. God, there it is. I can't hide it anymore. 
The sin of this other man's wife is on this hand. His blood is dripping from this hand. And God, I simply don't know what to do except to bring it to you and tell you, I am so sorry for what I have done. There it is. If you're going to get right with God, you've got to listen to what He explained. You've got to look at what he expressed. And then lastly, you've got to learn from what he experienced. Learn from what he experienced. You've heard it said that a fool will not learn from his mistakes. A a smart man will learn from his mistakes, but a wise man will learn from somebody else's mistakes. (laughs) I I want us to learn a couple of things from David. Here's what I have in mind. You, you, You shop online, don't you? eBay, Amazon.com, Walmart.com. Oh, come on, somebody. If you shop online, you know that right before you go to make that purchase, there's usually, there are usually some reviews that are listed there beside it. I mean, 500 other people bought this item, and they've listed what their experience was with it. Now, if you're very wise, you'll click on that and find out what have all the other people who did this experienced when they bought that item. Now, here's what I want us to do as I close. I want us to just click on David's review. Here's what I want to ask. David, you committed adultery, fathered a child out of wedlock, murdered that man to cover it up, hid it from God for a year. But I heard over at the diner that you went to the altar on a Thursday night at the Bible conference. David, I want to ask you a question. How'd that go for you? What'd you experience? And his experience is wrapped up and answered in the last phrase of tonight's text. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Two simple things, and I'm going to my seat. What did David experience? He experienced that there is mercy for confessed sin. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says that he who conceals his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses them shall obtain mercy. David says, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. John Phillips comments on this verse and says that anyone crushed in heart by a knowledge of guilt and sin can come and find the pardon that God offers when sin is confessed. Now David uses a very picturesque word when he says that thou, God, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This word forgave literally means to lift a burden. By the way, when when a burden is taken away, the weight of that burden does not go away. Somebody has to pick it up and tote it. Y'all understand tote in Lebanon? I, I mean, gravity was not suspended. When the burden was lifted, 
Somebody else had to pick it up. Do you have your Calvary ears inclined to this text? When the debt was paid, the debt didn't just go away. Somebody had to pay it. When, when, when the penalty was taken away from me, the penalty didn't just go away. Somebody else had to suffer under that penalty. When the burden of my adultery and the weight of my murder and all of the shackles of that guilt were lifted off of me, where, pray tell, did it go? I think the hymn writer gives us a little insight when he said, He took my sin and my sorrow and made them his very own. The Lord Jesus bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. See, I've come tonight with good news. You don't have to carry around that guilt. Not one more blessed moment. I hadn't come tonight to make you feel bad. I've come tonight to let you know God will make you feel good. That burden that you've been carrying, He'll lift it up and put it across His big old strong back, put it on His shoulders, carry it up a blood-stained skull-shaped hill, die under the wrath of God for that that you did, and you can walk away saying, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm forgiven. I'm clean, I'm right with God. And thou forgavest. You lifted up and carried away the burden of my sin. David experienced there's mercy for confessed sin. There's one more experience that he has, and I'm headed to my seat. He, he experienced the marvel of cleansed sin. Did, did you see that little word at the end of verse 5? You, you'll also see it at the end of verse 7. Selah. That's how you say it, Selah. W would you say that with me? Selah. Now that word Selah is believed to be a musical term. Now there's debate about it. You, you understand the Psalms were written to be sung and uh, some would say that this word selah is a musical term that references a pause in the music. Uh, some would say, choir, it's a pause in the lyrics. Maybe the, maybe the pianist keeps playing. In that day, there'd be the harp. And the idea here is that the, the, the words come to a stop for you to think about what they've just sung. Some say, no, the whole song comes to a stop, a grand pause. No instrument, no lyric, but the idea is the same. An opportunity to stop and think about what you've just heard. What did David experience? I acknowledged my sin unto thee. And I said, I cannot hide my iniquity from you. Not one more moment. Here's what I said. I said, I'm going to get in the altar and I'm going to confess my transgressions to the Lord. Yeah. And then when he got to that altar, in our, in our vernacular, maybe not knowing exactly what he was going to find, but when he came to that altar, realizing, church, that he deserved wrath and he found mercy, realizing he deserved judgment and he found forgiveness... Realizing that he deserved hell, but what he got instead was heaven. Realizing that what he deserved was to be eternally cut off from God himself, but what he became was a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. David says, Selah. 
Now, since the scholars debate about what it means, I guess, Brother Glenn, that my translation of it is as good as anybody else's. I think the word Selah means, Woo! You you do that for me. You'd love me like I am, but love me too much to leave me like that. You'd forgive me after all I've done. Woo! Hallelujah! Blessed be the name of the Lord. Glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. Thank you that thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Heard about two old boys that were in a service like this one. Sitting on the back row, came time for the invitation. Both of them have been running the roads. Y'all know what I mean by that. Both of them knew what the other one had been up to. They'd been doing it together. One of them couldn't take it. He was the first one down forward getting right with God. Went back to his buddy who was still white knuckling the pew. He said, man, don't you want to go forward and get right with God? He said, no, man, it's a Thursday night. (laughs) What will people think? Can't I just get right with God back here? He said, no, you can't get right with God on the back row. You got to go to the altar. They sang another verse. Tears pouring down that old backslider's face. His friend said, don't you want to go forward to the altar? Don't you want to get right with God? His friend said, no. What will people think? I don't want them knowing what I've been doing. I don't want them thinking anything bad about me. Can't I just get right with God here on the back row? And his friend said, no, you can't get right with God on the back row. You've got to go forward to the altar. After they sang another verse, his buddy elbowed him and said, let me out in the aisle. I've got to go forward. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I'm just concerned about what God knows. I've got to get right with God. Let me out to the altar. And his friend said, now you can get right with God on the back row. I don't pretend to even know why God led me to preach this message, but I tell you what, in a group this size, it's more than one. I wonder, is anyone here tonight that needs to say along with David... I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and here's the good news. Thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin.